I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Lada Shehab, psychoanalytic practitioner, scholar, and activist. I'm Lada Shiha. I'm a clinical psychologist and a psychoanalyst, psychoanalytic practitioner, not a psychoanalyst yet. I have some conflict around psychoanalytic training that we can get into. Um, but, and I'm also an activist um, with all complexity of that word. But um, let's start off by, uh, I'd like to sort of just locate myself and that's part of um, what I can get into in terms of how I practice and how I think about psychoanalysis. Um, I'm currently on occupied palm monkey land and um, I often start my presentations like that locating and it's nothing new obviously this is something that indigenous folks have been uh, asking for for some time and leading the way in terms of teaching us how one locates themselves and not disavow history. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times I'm confronted by people feeling like somehow um, questioning whether that's the performativity of that or questioning how that might be a, um, a departure from the point of the presentation. And my response is always, you know, if we think about psychoanalysis as being dealing with the structural <laughs> and dealing with the unconscious and our tenets say that the unconscious does not forget, I feel like it's our ethical imperative then to not disavow the history in which we take part in and the space which we occupy. And so um, that rather than think about it as a departure from anything we're doing, we have to think about it as a starting point, right? And as a starting point that is in coherence with our theory and with what we think about and how we decenter hegemonic narrative, right? If that's part of what we're working towards, and that's, I think, what psychoanalysis has always espoused, then why does magically this idea of the history of indigenous folks and where we sit and where we practice and, um, and where our theories came to be and what our theories displaced, really, um, in the process? So that is a starting point for me always. And, um, and then I'll let you go ahead. You can ask questions wherever you want to start. No, I love that because I think that getting, thinking about history in all of these ways and ancestry is really, really important. And I feel like psychoanalysts, if anyone should understand, like through all this research with transgenerational transmission of trauma and anything, that how important this is. Yes, absolutely. And I think the fact that it's forgotten and is looked at as a sort of alien process or questioned is precisely the ways in which these things get dissociated, right? So that is how our field has come to be. We only project ourselves into like the present, right? Which is a largely white, cis, hetero, um, middle to upper middle class practice. And I think the way that you maintain that and the way that you maintain those structures and by that you maintain supremacy, right? Everything that white supremacy is about is by dissociating those things. So in a field where we care, like you said, about family, about where you come from, about the various iterations of dynamics within family dynamics, about history, 
going back way back, you have people who ask people about their great, great grandparents, where you came from, your migration story, your immigration story. And yet somehow we then forget about that, right? And you have these sort of reductionistic ideas about how the, the political doesn't belong in the clinic, right? Um, one of my biggest pet peeves and part of why, like I started off, I have, I have um, conflict around psychoanalytic training, right? Uh, not all of us have the luxury of separating the political from the personal. And that is very much another way that these sort of hegemonic structures have come to be the norm, just what's understood. Um, a lot of my work is sort of questioning the ideological premise of psychoanalysis to begin with. How did we come to be such a Puritan sort of, how did we come to espouse such a Puritan space, mm -hmm. right? Um, that is just held within the walls of the clinic with the absolute arrogance that somehow the life of a patient outside of our walls is less important, right? Um, and that is part of all that. So that's part of my work. That's part of how I think about things. That's what I present about. It's also how I teach, right? I teach our students is like, you, you are not the end all be all, nor do you know more than your patient. And so if we come in with the understanding somehow that the political is separated, what space do we create for people to bring in their actual lives, their full lives? Um, I think as a field, we're in many ways, our field is afraid of that because our field is fundamentally a white led field. And what does it mean when you start letting in full lives of people who might not identify as the hegemonic norm, mm -hmm. right? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to our spaces? What are we seeding? And maybe the better question is what do we not want to see <laughs> that ends up having us um, not ask those questions or not care to or have these ludicrous rules around training and, and um, what counts as psychoanalysis. Yeah, and I'm, sure I mean, you, I'm sure you've been told that many times. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, because to me, it's so antithetical to how what I understand psychoanalysis to be. So to me, it makes no sense. And I've actually had like in my graduate school program and also when I was in an institutional training with an ego psychologist as my training analyst, like they actually believe that the way that somebody undergoes analysis is that they eventually identify with and like integrate the ego of the analyst, which is healthier than them. And that's yes. so violent and horrendous, they can't even stand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's code, right? It's code because even associatively, who do we then project as the sort of ultimate analyst, right? Even though the field is um, more and more becoming woman dominated, the sort of arch ideological premise of who the analyst is, is an old white dude, mm -hmm. right? Which and so, <laughs> exactly. Medical doctor. <laughs> Precisely. Um, <laughs> straight, cis, sort of, um, and, and much of that, of course, is stereotypical. And I think there's been a lot done. I don't want to downplay the work that has been done to chip away at that. But we also feel in the world of cultural fantasies and projections. And so when you sort of scratch at the surface, what we end up seeing in our minds or what we end up thinking about as the ultimate or associating together with health does often end up being that ego 
of the analyst who is all-knowing, who is better, who somehow has found the secret to health, right? At the expense of what, though? And that's what I end up asking my students and a lot of what is at the expense of what? Because when you have a monolithic sort of idea about health and about, um, you know, the primacy of certain characterological aspects, it's always the exclusion of something else. And what we know historically is oftentimes the exclusion of those who have minority status in one way or another, or to sort of more traditional and especially indigenous ways of thinking, right? That's what mm -hmm. drew me to, to uh, liber liberation theory um, and how it applies to psychoanalysis. So like a, liber a liberatory psychoanalysis, liberation psychoanalysis. Um, because I think a lot of people, when I tell them, so I'm a, I'm Arab, I'm an immigrant, I came here post 9-11, I don't have American citizenship, I'm on a green card, um, I'm a highly racialized subject, my childhood was that as well, I lived in Canada for about seven years in a thousand population town in Alberta, and it was very, very, very racist and very anti-indigenous as well. And so a lot of people, when they meet me now and they know about the work that I do, they're just kind of like, why psychoanalysis? Like, why the fuck are you in psychoanalysis? Right? And I understand where that comes from. And our field has been, um, it has a very sordid history in terms of the ways in which it takes up these issues. Um, and I was not satisfied with that. In my own training, I came in and I had to fight tooth and nail to talk about racial issues, even as they unfolded in the group process. It was just like, Hello, um, look at the ways that we're talking about patients. Look at the language that we use, stuff that's normalized. That's just like everyday language and nobody questions. Mm -hmm. And I was often, of course, thought about as aggressive and it doesn't matter. I could sit there all day with just a smile on my face and I would still be called aggressive, which started me thinking about like, what else is going on here? It's clearly not what I'm saying. It's clearly not what I'm doing. There's a projective process that is going on that is larger than us, that goes back way far. And over the years, I started to realize that there's so much of this that's disavowed particularly in the context of the United States mm -hmm. that whose unconscious has come to like come come to haunt it mm -hmm. with a vengeance right the stuff that has been disavowed this talk about a post-racial society a post you know genocidal society a forgetting entirely about um, the ways in which this country was formed to begin with um, more about how that ties into Israel and why there's like a natural connection between the United States and Israel in terms of this genocidal history. But the, that, and so the theories I loved, right? I crave the theories. I'm an English literature major. I started as an English literature major. That is where psychoanalysis is alive and well. Mm -hmm. I did a psychology minor and I felt like the behavioral approach was so lacking in terms of its depth and in terms of its, um, uh, respect for the human, right, in the depth of the human and internal narratives. And being a racialized subject and sort of also being in Lebanon at the time, I felt there's also in behaviorism, there's a sort of overlay or maybe under underlying premise that can also be used to racist ends. Like somehow we as people of color don't have an internal world. And the only thing that we can do is be conditioned and that's often how it's used, like right in Palestine, this is for example, NGOs, how NGOs use things. 
like, oh, don't worry about their internal world. They're really not sophisticated enough. And it's, it's a classical sort of orientalist idea about things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so here I was in, in between. I was conflicted. I was like, I love this theory. I feel like it has, uh, along with sister disciplines, by the way, which are oftentimes just ignored entirely, right? Critical race theory and queer theory and all that. That's always ignored. But together, I feel like we have the language, the tools to uncover ideological processes. So something inside of me knew that that was there, but in practice and in theory, that was entirely missing. And I was like, what is going on here that there are no spaces for us to talk about this? So when I found liberation theory, and I thought, what a great segue into psychoanalysis for my own thought. Now, of course, I'm not the first person to think about this, Fanon, (laughs) having been somebody who naturally knew this, right, by way of his own location in this world and what he went through and with this sort of natural um, understanding about the political and the personal and about our role and our ethical imperative to provide language and to provide a sort of framework around why these larger political things happen and, by the way, to locate ourselves within them. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in just being somebody, and that is what liberation theory is about. It's like, you cannot be the person just on the sidelines pontificating about what is happening. You have to realize your own position within that. And in North American psychoanalysis, at least, I would say psychoanalysis as a whole, but particularly in North American psychoanalysis, our complicity within these systems, Mm -hmm. right? And my conflict also came around, so I, you know, I'm an anarchist um, and I'm anti-capitalist and my conflict around my own training was what is my role in being a clinician to people? Is my role to uh, restore people to functioning in a fucked up world? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't sit well with me, like to make them good neoliberal citizens that go and function you know in these long hours i feel that their symptoms are real and necessary and a normative response to a fucked up system Mm -hmm. and my struggle was always what i was being taught was um not so much just symptom reduction that's a more behavioralist approach it was more in depth but in the end our idea of health was so skewed to a capitalist order that there was nothing about that that felt good, right? When people would come in and explain their symptoms to me, until I found liberation theory and until I started looking at it from a structural and systemic point of view, not on an individual level, I felt deeply unethical, right? It's like, here, let me patch you up and send you out to function in a world that demands more and more of you every single day, that Mm -hmm. demands a resilience beyond what you should have to hold, that... I become the conduit to patching up holes in a system that's fundamentally fucked up, mm-hmm. right? And are in many ways, especially during my training, I was not given uh, tools to think about it like that. So a lot of this came after the fact, my own this being disgruntled by it, my own traumas within the... Um, system, um, being told again and again and again that this is not what you're thinking and what you're asking is not psychoanalysis. And quite frankly, and this is where the, the 
wonderful, beautiful, generous mentors that did get it. And that took me under their wing. And that, for whatever reason, luck of the draw, protected me from larger processes where I did have a space to sort of kick and scream and and test out and experiment and push up against them even, because most of them are senior clinicians, and find a space within that where I'm like, no, I'm gonna fucking say this. You're going to hear it. Um, I It's necessary for us to have a voice within this. And quite frankly, this is, the, I can't say this without also attending to my own privileges within this. Like I. I would not be able to do that if it weren't for the privileges, whatever they may be, despite me being an immigrant, I'm, you know, I'm an Arab, it, it, I benefit from this idea of a model immigrant identity. Um, I'm, you know, nobody, well, people did question my my ability, my fluency, just that's, that's sort of microaggression that comes with that, like, how did you learn well, you speak so well? How did you learn to speak English? <laughs> um, but it's almost like using the language of the master, right? That I understand I practice within a colonial structure and through a colonial uh, register. And how do I think about that without also being Pollyannish, like somehow I'm the magical Trojan horse that's inside and that's subversive. There is a subversiveness to it, if nothing else, to constantly be that thorn in the side of hegemonic ideology, right? To be that feminist killjoy, to quote Sarah Ahmad, right? To be in the room and constantly be like, hold the fuck up. Let's think about this. What are we doing? What are we thinking? What are the premises in which we even function, right? What are the truths? That's what I tell my students all the time. I'm like, we function from non-negotiable truths. These are the non-negotiable truths. I teach in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., particularly in the Northwest, is a heavily gentrified uh, community. It was the first to be gentrified. It's the belly of the beast. We're two blocks away from the White House. Hmm. How do I come into my room and just teach without locating that, right? I, it happened to me. I was taught in the same pro program that I uh, teach in now. And... There were other ways in which things were located, but not with that sort of um, tenor of non-negotiable truths. We sit on a land that is that was built by slave labor. We are unoccupied indigenous land. There are structural inequities. There are systems of oppression, uh, which psychology and psychoanalysis have eagerly practiced from and exploited and disenfranchised certain sectors to our benefit and that is where we start those are the non-negotiable truths from where we start and our my students respond really well to that mm -hmm. there's something so liberating about reclaiming this about truths right and saying this is non-negotiable this is just the truth this is where we start and anything that we go from here is a departure from there versus working backwards yeah, I like that you called it post-colonial psychoanalysis. Yep. Because people are always asking me what kind I am, and I'm pretty eclectic. But <laughs> post-colonial psychoanalysis, I could, I could put that label on. Yeah. <laughs> I further and say a decolonial psychoanalysis. Decolonial. 
because post-colonial also sometimes is an out, mm-hmm. right? Like a really comfortable liberal way of being like, I practice in a post-colonial world where it's like, actually, no, we don't because mm-hmm. indigenous folks are still being erased to this day. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's like this idea of like, are you, um, you know, are you against racism or are you actively anti-racist? De- decolonizing. Exactly. I'm, and, and I know that word has been thrown around really fast and loose, decolonial. What does it mean to be decolonial? It means that, at ev- that's what I mean by being the voice that at every step is questioning the structures who, by the way, their job is to reconstitute themselves. Mm-hmm. We know this. Existence. It's like capitalism. Like mm-hmm. in Arabic, we have this this saying that's like right don't blame the wolf for being a wolf mm. it, the job of structures is to reconstitute themselves when people push up against them so if we understand it like that and we know this from symptoms and we know this from working with people exactly right? if to change structures you have to consistently challenge them and that means us too is consistently challenge these notions that have become common sense that's what a decolonial praxis is for me within our field. So it happens outwardly is a constant sort of questioning of the very uh, structures, the theories, the writing, the training models, pedagogy, everything. And then from within as well as I'm teaching is sort of allowing my students the ability to wrangle and and um, wrestle with the notions that they have come to know as givens, mm-hmm. right? And from a, in a collaborative process, because I'm not the seer of all things. And so that also means that I am part of that process. I see a lot of pedagogy, particularly in our field, where people ask students to engage in a process and then tap themselves out of it. I've never seen that work. Why would somebody engage fully and with good faith if the person who's supposed to be modeling this is just like, but it stops here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, we espouse that we've moved away from a one person psychology, which is like this sort of Freudian, everything's inside and intrapsychic to a two person psychology where we're co-creating everything until our own privileges get pushed up against. Then we regress so quickly to a one person where it's just like, well, wait a second. No, I'm not included. In this. And, People get that. Our students see it. Mm-hmm. They, they they feel how disingenuous that is, and our patients do too. What I why would I engage? That was part of my own um, struggles within my own work, my therapeutic work when I went to therapy, um, and when I was in psychoanalytically oriented therapy, is not feeling like that person was genuine in their approach to really being in it with me, mm-hmm. right? There were limitations to that. Um, part of that was racial, of course, now I come to know, mm. so. Yeah, well, let's talk about all these things that you're doing with, um, you're doing the next Division 39 conference. I'm one of the co-chairs, yes. Let's talk about that so people know. All right, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so the APA American Psychological Association has many divisions and the division that I'm part of, I'm the secretary of the division is the, division, the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology. And every year we have an annual conference. This year I'm one of the co-chairs along with my lovely um, 
co-chairs Nadine Albaid and Leilani Salvo Crane, and it's March 18th to 21st in New York City. I'm very excited about it. The theme is reckoning slash foresight. Um, we're kind of working with this 2020. Uh, it's March 2020, but we also wanted to steer away from being ableist, right? So we didn't want to use 2020 specifically in that way because we know the fantasy of 2020 is that there's perfect vision and the ableism that comes with that because we also know there is no perfect vision. Mm -hmm. um, but so, it, so I think that this has been a labor of love in many ways because all three of us are women of color. It's the first time that there's three women of color. It's the first time, I don't think it's the first time there's three women, but it's the first time there's three women of color. Um, and we really, uh, tried to piece together a steering committee that's representative also. And it's really amazing what can be created when you really do decenter the this sort of, again, this hegemonic norm, right? So we have a steering committee that's unbelievably um, representative, both from credentials, by the way. So we have a psychiatrist on our steering committee. We have a social worker on our steering committee. Psychology has been very territorial in terms of like, oh, who belongs in our space and who doesn't, um, and which is also elitist, mm -hmm. right? Particularly with regard to social workers, who, by the way, are the coolest fucking people. And I wish we all were social workers because <laughs> they tend to be, have their pulse a lot more on political movements and political process um, and have not forgotten sister disciplines in terms of their training and we have. So we did want to open it up like that. Um, we are also very gender diverse and, um, and, and um, what's it called, generationally diverse. And that is being shown in terms of what ideas are being generated about like invited steering committee panels, right? And what we will be showcasing. So it's very exciting to be able to plan a conference that feels um, aligned with the values that we hope to see. This is where the theme comes from. Mm -hmm. I think psychoanalysis has been working very hard to try and address the systemic issues that we, you and I have been talking about, right? It, they're trying. I don't want to say they're not. But like all good white liberals, sometimes there's a speed away from like sitting in the shit that you created and feeling what that feels like to be discomforted and to be confused and to not know and to have your um, privilege sort of hanging in the mix, right? And so then there's just been like this, what, what I would call manic defense against working through, ironically. Right. So we have like the beginning and we have the working through, which we know clinically is the hardest part <laughs> because that is when you are negotiating. What do I keep? What do I let go? Um, what do I create? Uh, what what have I had an affection and affinity for and, and, and an attachment to that? Holy shit, this is not working or this is really fucked up. Right. And so we've seen this sort of. Yes, we are the field has been um, sort of contending with issues of, uh, for example, the effects of slavery on in the clinic, right? The lasting effects, the wrecking effects of race, that's what Dorothy Holmes would call it, right? How, and there's been a struggle through that and gender and, um, and uh, issues of taking up, do we take up the Me Too movement? Is there a Me Too movement in psychoanalysis? Um, and, 
bringing back Fanon, the resurgence of Fanon and Fanon's theory about decolonial work. And then all of a sudden you see the skip to like, oh, okay, now we're good. <laughs> it's like, no, wait a second, we're not. Which is where this idea of reckoning came from, right? We still have to reckon with a lot of what we've done, right? Um, section nine of Division 39 is the section of psychoanalysis for social responsibility. Mm. And two years ago, we paired up with the Society of Indian Psychologists to draft an apology letter to harm done for Native peoples. And um, they led us through a sort of acknowledgement ceremony and accepted our apology on behalf of psychoanalysis. And the division later then signed on to that. This is the first time the Society of Indian Psychologists at the time the president was Art Bloom said this is the first time that any psychological entity has admitted to harm done to indigenous people. And that's like, that's nothing. That's like literally you're just saying I did this, right? We know there's so much more to do and committing to structural change means committing to structural change. It's not just I'm signing off on an apology letter. Then we took it up to APA and now APA has a task force to for an apology um but now what's in the works is an also an apology to the lgbtq community for harm done and continued harm done this and that's the part why we wanted it to be reckoning because what we didn't want is this like pollyannish manic defense that somehow this harm is still not being done right you and i were at a conference in may in stockholm mm -hmm. If you remember when I asked a clinician about who had presented a case that he has been working with for 20 years and he said no demographic information, nothing. And I asked him and his response was, I'm sorry you feel that way, next. Right? And there's still harm done. So we can't just sort of rush through it. We have to have a reckoning. And a reckoning means also sitting in that. And a reckoning means humbling ourselves to listen to voices that we have systematically disenfranchised and silenced. Um, and that is where our theme came from. So we're really, really excited. Um, our speakers, our, our keynote speakers, um, Katyusha Tamalanar, she goes by Usha Tamalanar. She works a lot with um, immigrant communities and she is one of the people in APA that's working the task force around um, the children who are in detention centers currently. So she's going to be talking about racial trauma and immigration. We have Nancy Carol Hollander who is a fucking awesome Marxist. Um, she used to be a historian of Latin America. She was there in Argentina when the coup happened and was on the ground um, and saw how psychoanalysis was systemically sort of um, purged from the system because a lot of psychoanalysts were leftists and were seen as agitators. Um, and she then later become, became a psychoanalyst herself and she talks about ideology and capitalism and so she's going to be presenting about that. And then we have uh, Mireille uh, Fanon Mendes France who is uh, the head of the France Fanon Foundation and uh, Fanon's daughter. So she's going to be coming and speaking about um, her work, which is an international human rights uh, work. She's uh, famously sort of been championing um, Mumia Abu Jamal's case, who was framed, um, uh, framed and said to have killed a cop. Um, he was part of the Black Panther Party prior, 
and was covering the move, uh, the move movement in Philadelphia after they were bombed and sort of became a target and has been a political prisoner since that time. And it was on death row and then appealed, um, but is a political prisoner who uh, a lot of people champion and rally around, but she has really worked very hard. So she comes to the United States several times a year to meet him. So you can see even just from our keynotes, mm-hmm. what is being represented and what the shifting tide we hope of like, where is psychoanalysis actually being done and who is the face of psychoanalysis? Who are the people who are talking about it? Who are you? who is using psychoanalysis and sort of breaking through hopefully this wall of somehow that there are limitations to this use and what our what our role might be, right? How do we take up, again, I go back to this constantly, our ethical imperative to use our theory towards liberation, towards fighting for people's rights to self-determination towards amplifying voices that have been systemically um, silenced and systemically abused. I, I, I can't practice if that's not what I'm doing. Yeah, that's absolutely the way psychoanalysis needs to be headed. And um, that seems like a good segue into your work that you did present at that conference in Stockholm in May. Yeah. Really important. Yeah, so um, Palestine, so I'm Lebanese. Um, and I was born in a super political family and Palestine has been in my heart since day one. Um, I think that's also an ethical imperative as Lebanese since there have been, uh, camps since, um, since 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes in 1948. That's a, that's a, um, a low estimate, but, um, there have been camps in Lebanon and quite frankly, the Lebanese government has treated Palestinians abhorrently. Um, so they continue to live 70 plus years on in camps, um, most of whom do not have the right to citizenship, can't work, um, and they live in, in squalor and they're systemically disenfranchised. Um, much of the rhetoric is around they, that they, um, if, if Palestinians are sort of given citizenship that they then um, can't go back to their homes, of course, to say the right of return. But that doesn't mean that you treat people as second-class citizens just because they have not been granted the right of the return by the occupying power, which is Israel, right? Um, so there's an, another ethical imperative of me as a Lebanese person as being being Lebanese, being responsible for the harm done to Palestinians who live within the borders of what is called Lebanon, right? Um, on the other side of that is just somebody who fights for liberation everywhere. I believe that our liberatory struggles are all um, linked, right? So when I fight for trans rights, I fight for Palestinian rights, I fight for black rights, and I uh, fight for every right of a person to self-determination, right? So, and, and to fight for people's rights to live dignified lives that are not marred by oppression and particularly state oppression. Um, so these, for me, it's a easy sort of link between all these things. Um, and that is where sort so, so that's the background history of why Palestine, right? So a lot of people mistakenly think that I'm Palestinian, which is really interesting because it 
sort of belies the underlying notion that somehow somebody can care so much about something if it's not of them, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You are just like, oh, you must be Palestinian. No, I'm not Palestinian. I would say Palestine lives in my heart. And why Palestine? People also ask that. You know, there's so many things happening in the world. Why Palestine? And I would say because Palestine is a current day living, breathing example of colonial settler regimes, mm -hmm. right? It is what is happening in Palestine right now is an example or a sort of present moment of what has happened in history to indigenous folks all over the world. And it's a pressing example of how all these things come together. So there's this idea of like progressive except Palestine, which is so true and particularly in psychoanalysis. You can have the most progressive people in the world on everything. They will fight for everything in the second Palestine is brought up. I actually wrote a piece about this called Palestine is a four letter word. It collapses people's ability to think and to reason and it just dissipates. And so that is where the energy is for me. When when something can create an upheaval like that, it tells me there's something central to be looked at in that space. Right? And so that's why my energies go there. Um I think that Palestinians also, particularly in the context of North American uh, media and culture and sort of cultural awareness, have been entirely dismissed, disenfranchised, um, vi uh, villainized, right? Um, you Like, for example, what's his name? It, it, after the, the, the shooting happened um, in El Paso, Dave Capper on CNN, out of the fucking blue, starts talking about Palestinians. And the onslaught of violence against Palestinians out of the blue, like how the fuck are you transposing a white nationalist crime in the United States against immigrant Latinx communities and transposing that and making a direct link with Palestinians? And the people sitting on his show are just like, yeah, cool, yeah, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense, right? So for me as somebody who thinks psychoanalytically, to see the collapse of reason and see how closely linked these ideological premises are is why my voice goes to Palestine, right? And your body, that. you go there physically. That's right. Yes. <laughs> my, my body, my soul, everything lives in Palestine. That's mm -hmm. right. But it's interesting because I always say this to people is that the right wing, particularly fascists, if you look, and I do spend a lot of time sort of studying their methods and their ideology because it it plays into um, decolonial work, right? And it plays into how do you fight something without understanding what constitutes it, right? And not in a way of like, I'm gonna dialogue with you because I do believe that when you're fighting with things like fascism, that this idea of splitting black and white thinking forfeits its pathology. It's okay to split when you are fighting fascism. That is not pathological. You do not need to be nuanced in everything. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That is one space in which it is healthy for you to say, absolutely fucking not. This is a hard line. Mm -hmm. And that's pathology, right? Um, but what I, what I notice, and this links back to the Palestine question, is that the right wing, particularly fascists, understand very well how liberation struggles are all linked. That is why somebody who commits an act of violence and murder against the Latinx communities ties it into Jewish folks ties it into liberalism, ties it into trans rights. If you see their manifestos, they understand very well how when we fight for liberation in one side, we mean liberation for everybody, right? 
it's liberals who have a fucking problem with that. <laughs> they have a real problem seeing the connection between the two, between everything. So it brings me back to Palestine. So when I fight for Palestine, I feel like while my energies are going there, I'm speaking to a larger um, audience and I'm speaking about a larger liberation struggle, something that Palestinians, by the way, on the ground understand very well, mm. particularly those who are um, leftists, who are engaged in a liberation struggle that has a coherence that speaks across gender, across sexuality, um, and speaks against secular colonialism which the aim of which is to reconstitute all those oppressive structures right so we see a lot israel talk about pink washing stuff but it's like that's not how it works if you have a colonial settler regime it will work to reinstate everything that is normative right in in square and scare quotes um which includes cis heteronormativity um you know a purity of uh, of being that excludes um, the type of variance and fluidity that we are fighting for, which brings me to where my body lies. <laughs> so, um, my partner and I, um, he's a cultural historian of the Middle East and Stephen Chihai and I, um, he and I are co-writing a book called Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, um, Theories and Practice in Palestine. And, um, that stemmed really from us looking through the psychoanalytic literature. So he uses psychoanalysis in the cultural history part, and he works on indigenous photography of the Arab world. He uses psychoanalysis to sort of read um, the relationships of photography to the people who take them, and then the subjects that are formed by them. So it sort of felt like a natural, I bring the clinical part, he brings the cultural history part. And um, we realized reading through the literature that it was stock full of this, these dialogue initiatives and relational psychoanalysis, particularly talking about dialogue and mutuality, right? And this incensed us because this idea of somehow asking the oppressed to come to the table with the oppressor and see their oppression in service of a larger peace is a losing battle for the oppressed. But it's spoken of as though it's the same thing, right? That each side has to let go of something, right? But that's not, that might be the wish later on. I'm not discounting that entirely, even though I have my reservations and suspicions about that. But it felt like a sort of um, a liberal ask and one that was deeply steeped in an ideology of North American sort of um, individualistic uh, speak that somehow places the individual over the collective. In fact, that's how it's been talked about, right? It's been talked about that to you have to forego the traumas of the collective to step into an individual where you have an ethical way of being. I mean, the offensiveness of this, right? that you are asking the oppressed to forego their rights, by the way, under international law, to resist by any means necessary, is what they are asking to do in dialogue initiatives. Also, dialogue initiatives are a way to say, are a fancy way to say that the armed struggle is not okay. I'm not advocating for armed struggle as the first, or the end all be all by any means. But if we are under international law, that is allowed. 
And if we are truly to say that we advocate for the self-determination of peoples, that means that we have to be comfortable making space for the, any means necessary for those peoples to come to their self-determination, right? Um, so people find it very difficult to wrap their minds around that, though. And that's what these dialogue initiatives were. They were a sort of a almost like an, um, a loyalty oath. You were asking the press to take a loyalty oath to subscribe to the ideas that you think are the ideas of liberation, which meant dialogue comes first, right? Now, part of the dialogue, I want to be fair, just because I'm a good scholar or I try to be a good scholar, that these dialogue initiatives also had the, the oppressor, right, cede more power, say that I am the one who really has done harm, but what it fails to see, and I think this is the part of like, if you have not been in a position of being oppressed, I think it is very easy to forego or overlook that being at the table with the oppressor is already giving up. You have already ceded everything by virtue of coming into conversation with the oppressor. That is already a lot of... Uh, space that you have given up. So in, in our mere asking the oppressed to come together in a dialogue, you have already asked them to cede so much. But it's not looked at that way. It's not talked about like that, right? And that's a very sort of white settler idea that somehow reason and intellect and being able to dialogue is the foremost and sort of um, right most civilized way of doing something yeah and like that that's is, how they got the land in the first place <laughs> right? it's like thinking of it like in north america it's like okay well we'll talk with the natives and we'll sign all these treaties with them and we'll move them and put them on this other part of the land and then we'll keep breaking our treaties and keep moving them and you know where does it go that's exactly right and so you bring up a really great point is where in history have you showed us that you are actually in entering into this dialogue in good faith Right? But these dialogue initiatives disavow that. And they entreaty people to come to the table as the primary way to get through to something. So our task was to go in and say, guess what? We're not coming in here to tell people how they want to be liberated. We're coming here to listen to what people are saying on the ground. Mm -hmm. right? And to the best of our knowledge, no major long-term project of dialogue or anything else in Palestine has been done in Arabic, right? We're bilingual. So when we go in there, we speak Arabic to them and we speak out of a political imperative, a political and ethical imperative that you speak the language of the indigenous people. Can't tell you the number of times, particularly in 1948 borders, right? Within 1948 borders, um, and mainly we've met with people from Haifa who practice elsewhere, but who live in Haifa, um, who have said that their training has all been in Hebrew and whose supervisors all speak Hebrew, who um, see patients and do their clinical work in Arabic, then translate to Hebrew for their notes and for their supervision, and then come back into the therapy and speak Arabic. Right. 
And so for us who deal with the idea of language and what's lost in translation, but then also the internalized narrative of the colonizer, so many of the, particularly in 1948 borders, shared with us their idea of like one day realizing that they have started to think and process in Hebrew and realizing that is a part of the erasure that comes with being a colonized subject mm -hmm. and their journey into reclaiming Arabic. So when you come in there as, you know, as somebody who's doing work or talking with them, when you speak a language that is not an indigenous language, you are also engaging in the process of erasure, right? Um, the other part of this is we were really not wanting this to be extractive. I didn't, didn't want to extract the labor of Palestinians, go into Palestine, where we have the privilege, by the way, to commute between 1948 and 1967 borders and Jerusalem, but not Gaza, by the way. Everybody says Gaza's a world onto its own. Um, we're trying to uh, start a delegation from the United States clinicians of color from the United States and clinicians of color from South Africa to try to get into Gaza next June. We anticipate that it's going to be rejected by the Israelis because you have to submit for permission to get into Gaza by the Israeli authorities. And the only people who are allowed in there are, um, are really journalists and they keep a list about which journalists are allowed to come in and which are not. So we anticipate we won't be getting in, but, Again, to commute between those worlds, we have the privilege to do that, right? But we did not want this to be extractive. So we heard so many stories of people saying, whether it's NGOs who come up, come in and set up for three to five years, um, projects that they believe is, are needed, not that the indigenous population needs, and then leave. After five years, they just leave and never come back, right? or dialogue initiatives who come in and stay there for the time they're staying there and then leave and they never hear back from them. That was never our intent, um, nor is that an ethical practice in any way. And so uh, when we go there, is uh, we try our best to work around. And part of that, by the way, can't be helped. And so what we've done is make that known in our constant dialogues with them about this conflict around being extractive. And so it's it's naming, naming the process, naming that in the end I do get in a, when, when I'm done for the time that I'm there, I do get into a bus and then a plane and then leave, right? Um, the way we've tried to get around that and continue the process is we um, have uh, continued our dialogue with people after we leave, so via Skype, via email, um, we've hooked people up with uh, people in the United States. Uh, one of our colleagues, and I hope more, are coming to the Division 39 conference. And um, uh, one of the psychologists who practices in Jerusalem will be presenting on an invited panel. So it's also just sort of being like, it's not just me going to you and taking and then coming back and that's it. It's, again, this decolonial praxis of putting um, for lack of a better word, money where your mouth is. You create spaces for people, mm -hmm. right? You can't just go in and just be like, oh, I'm listening to your voices, but then continue to think about white people to put in places of people that are systematically disenfranchised, right? Um, and then when I go there, um, because I'm a clinician, I feel like I actually have skills that I can, and things I can import, but I, it, but not just from my head. So. 
every time we go down, I um, we sort of put a call out to all the clinicians we've created a network with and ask them what they need, um, what they need from us, whether that's books. Uh, so a lot of my colleagues have bought books and sent it with us, books that are hard to come by, particularly in 1967 borders. Um, so there's a clinic, uh, family and child, ch children guidance clinic in Bethlehem that need a lot of books. And so we've carried those in for them. Um, we've, I've led workshops, clinical workshops, uh, we've given talks. And so it, part of it is also being in that work. You don't just come in and take from people. You come in and you listen to them and ask what they need. And I, we do everything we can to accommodate their actual needs, not just tell them what they might need. Um, that has been the single most important uh, work of my life, truly. It's, it's changed my world, it's changed my life. It centers me in a way that nothing else does and, um, and makes me feel like we're, uh, I'm actually doing something. You know, and not in like a capitalist, like a to do is to it actually feels useful. <laughs> You're actually making a difference in people's li difference in people's lives. Yeah, we're trying. And I think, you know, the, the most moving parts and this is the, the most moving parts is not my skill sets, not the clinical part. It's people who say we feel like the world has forgotten us and your physical presence here gives us hope, right? It's, it feels so simple and yet it's real. I mean, that the affect that goes along with that, and this is where the Lebanese parts come, comes in. Because Lebanese, people who have Lebanese citizenship can't go to uh, Palestine because Israel is an enemy state and you are bound to be looked at as you might be a spy or, or um, people from Lebanon can't go in and or vice versa. So when they hear a Lebanese accent, it's unbelievable. I mean, I've never been so moved in my life, moved to tears literally where people are like, are, are you Lebanese for real? You're, and you're here like, oh, we only hear your accent on TV, right? And I don't, I, and I don't in any way mean to um, animate that in any way or make light of it, it's, it's truly the sort of mark of a people that have been dislocated and disconnected from the people who are closest to them. So I talk with a man who said that when he was younger, he used to freely cross from the north into the south of Lebanon, north of Palestine into the south of Lebanon, back and forth. There used to be a, a trade route there and people used to come and go all the time. And who now will go and sit for hours at the border, just looking into Lebanon, because you can't go in. Right, so it's like talking to those people and embodying what they are mourning and what they have lost, and being humbly present with that. It's not in it carries me through the times when I'm so disaffected and so feel so demoralized and definitely on listservs where I commit microaggressions all the fucking time and it reminds me that's what I'm fighting for. Mm -hmm.
powerful. Um, I presented um, back in April at Division 39 and sort of have a like a six point thing about what I would want, what I'm not interested in a practice of psychoanalysis and what my entreaty to people are, which is a sort of thread. Um, and I'm wondering if it would be useful to sort of say those things is just like put it out into the ether and challenge clinicians to take this up question. Where do you think of it? How do we collectively fight for this? Um, and that, I, I think that frames my scholarship, the way that I teach my work in Palestine. Um, but do you think that that would be Let's do it. helpful? Okay. This is very shut. Okay. <laughs> um, so just to say that like psychoanalysis is a theory, it reminds us that we must, rec we must reclaim the disavowed to move towards health, right? So in that, this is where I'm working and tinkering with these like six points that we have to think about, right? Um, so number one is if we speak of co-created spaces, which psychoanalysis loves to do, we cannot build a movement, especially one that speaks about boundaries without also discussing white supremacy and the ways in which it enlists us all and needs everyone to be viable. I'm not interested in movement that's ableist, purist, xenophobic, or nationalistic, right? And none of us should be. Number two, if the unconscious does not forget, we always think of unconscious doesn't have time, right? Or space limitations. We can't build a movement that does not take history and lived or occupied space into account. So I'm not interested in having a movement, for example, that can't see the connections between physical boundary violations and the rights of Palestinian women, like I'm saying, whose relationships to confinement, space, and movement are dictated by their colonial oppressors. That's how it ties into the work. Number three, if we espouse fluidity as health and assess rigidity as symptomatic, we always say if symptoms are rigid, they're bad. If they're fluid, they're good. We cannot build a movement that does not make space for trans non-binary and gender non-conforming folks and also men especially those who've been aggressed upon themselves i'm not interested in an exclusive movement of psychoanalysis um, number four if we believe that all that is repressed will re-emerge and seek to be seen we are seeing this in the context of today's political world we cannot build a psychoanalysis that erases and nullifies black and indigenous women particularly but black and indigenous people overall i'm not interested in a movement or a psychoanalysis that disavows the labor of those who come before us, our elders and our contemporaries who've done the hard work for us. Um, number five, if we believe that work, love and play and the vicissitudes of pleasure are markers of health and wellness and not in a capitalist way, by the way, in truly a pleasure, we can't build a psychoanalysis that does not include sex workers. I'm not interested in a movement that shames women for their chosen labor or shames anybody for their chosen labor, particularly women, or enacts patriarchal rules around body autonomy and purity. These are things that we all should be fighting for. And then finally, if we reject the primacy of the Oedipal relationship and understand the ways in which people choose objects with whom to identify, healthy interjects to take in whole, um, safe attachments that heal, we can't build a psychoanalysis that only props up settler sexuality. And this is something that Kim Talbert or Scott Mort Morganson speak about. Um, not interested in a psychoanalysis that prioritizes traditional family configurations at the expense of alternative family and love relationships. Um, I'm sure there's a lot that I have 
left out <laughs> in this, but I, this is what I commit to as a clinician every single day. This is what I entreat all of us to commit to in our scholarship, in our workplaces, in when we present and to create spaces for all these things to actually become uh, available. And I think that's how we move to a, a liberatory praxis. listening to Rendering Unconscious, you've just heard a discussion with Dr. Lada Shiha, psychoanalytic practitioner, scholar, and activist. For more, please visit our website, renderingunconscious.org. And for more about the conference of the Division 39 of the American Psychological Association, please visit their website, Division. 39springmeeting.com Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Please support the podcast at our Patreon. You can find the link below or visit www.patreon.com slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. We can, the symbolism and effect. For example, we of DNA may very well be the main purpose of your revelation. Shape as a temporary transient appendage. You believe that equally well-founded as the view that the cut-ups, sexual activity being one of its functions, the we are creating, of course, because I am the first to witness all the more reason to break parents, alt the and practice, s that is going on, written history, pace we can, allowing for us as humans to develop lighting life. A newspaper and his. I longed for a rather than impulsively, reflexively fucking these basic elements. A 
couch, cot, animal hide. The one encouraged to, the merging thus revealing, they're excited. I know that to re-enter mortality, we must able to, us busy, poor, growth as one writing will consist, band is near, from these trying to change your young tracks, I don't is perhaps the create unnameable and were emptied of all away dropped or not but if you succeed you will be the ground upon master explained all that has to be changed psychoanalysis give an illustrated talk what happened and into a woman there is no other way he was still doing painter too for the pair for this experience from the a natural act into a ritual symbolism and effect. For example, we of DNA may very well be the main purpose of your revelation. We can, the symbolism and effect. For example, we of DNA may very well be the main purpose of your revelation. Shape as a temporary 
transmute appendage. You believe that equally well-founded as the view that the cut-ups, sexual activity being one of its functions, though we are creating of course because I am the first to witness all the more reason to break parents alt the and practice s that is going on